New alarm bells over climate change. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Some of the world's leading climate scientists are talking about global warming in some unprecedented ways right now. And here to talk about that is Dr. Jillian Gregg. She's a professor at Oregon State University, which has done some landmark research in all this. And Dr. Gregg, what are the scientists finding right now? Okay, well, there's a group called the Alliance of World Scientists and we found that there's all these reports going around, like the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change just came out with their most recent report with all these dire warnings to humanity. But this is a, an enormous collation of all scientific data from the last five to seven years. And it's then summarized in these three enormous volumes. And then there's a summary for policymakers. But our message is more. Um, we summarized a, a lot of data, very data intensive, into one article that is only 1500 words. And it's meant to be a direct message from the scientists to the people that anybody could read. And so what we've done is we've summarized 31 vital signs of the planet all into one location. And the idea is the IPCC put out this dire message that we have to act and we have to have 45% of 2010 emissions by 2030 or there's gonna be these major consequences. But how do we know if we're making any progress? There's all these reports and all these ways that you can see what's going on. And what we've done is we collated all these vital signs into one place. So there's two and one of the vital signs, I don't mean to interrupt you, but one of the vital signs has to do, for example, with carbon dioxide emissions and concentration. And you found that April 2021 was the highest concentration of carbon dioxide in the history of this record being kept? Exactly, yeah. It's just, it's an ever increasing level of carbon dioxide. There's been no pause since, it's, since we began measuring it in the 1950s. Has there been any pause in any of the indicators, say, thanks to COVID-19 and the fact that so much production around the world was slowed down? That was very, very exciting to be able to be in the midst of COVID and have something to look at actually as a scientist. Like, how, what is the actual impact there? And we did, there was a 17% reduction in the CO2 emissions during those first three months of, of the shutdown. But as countries began opening back up over the course of the year, that came to an average of only a 9% reduction. We also saw that massive reduction in the GDP and a massive reduction in the airline flights. So all of these things went down, but then since the reopening, everything is bouncing up and so it's not having a long-term impact. But what is really important to notice in the numbers for that COVID year when we did see a reduction in emissions, is that emissions is a really different figure than the actual atmospheric CO2 concentrations that I've said have never paused. So even though we had a 9% reduction in emissions over that first, over, over, over a year, 91% of our emissions are still adding to the CO2 pool in the atmosphere. And so it still was growing with no pause whatever. That is why you hear scientists saying we've got to get to net zero emissions because we want we need that atmospheric CO2 pull to stop rising and just completely level off. And once it levels off, we're still at a level that's too high for the earth and we need to go into drawdown and pull those CO2 concentrations 
down back to 350 parts per million. So and yet even if we even if we were able to cut back on industrial emissions, there's still emissions, say, from livestock. There's also a detriment to the atmosphere we're causing by the destruction of rainforest. So I guess the message is it's not just emissions that contribute to the dangers that we're facing, right? Right. There, we need to we need to reduce reduce in all different aspects of the impacts that we're having on our environment. Uh, the ruminant population they emit a lot of methane, and methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas, and uh, and it's it's something that um, as, as individuals people always ask me, what can they do as an individual? Maybe you can't change your country and whether they're subsidizing fossil fuels, but um, ruminant uh, populations are we we have more biomass in cattle on the earth than we have of all humans and wildlife combined. And on a personal level, one can, you don't have to eat no meat, but you could eat less less meat and that would have an immediate impact on your own personal carbon footprint. And there are, are, are personal carbon footprint calculators that you can look at at the EPA and um, sort these things out if you like. In general, is industry doing a better job around the globe now, at least of being able to track the carbon emissions that they pump into the atmosphere, or there's, or is this just such a such a steep climb that maybe it doesn't even matter? I think tracking is financial. Um, you, we know how many barrels of of oil are sold, and how many uh, train cars of coal are sold, and so we know if they were someone spent money on them, then they're going to burn them and put them into the atmosphere. So tracking is is pretty straightforward. Um, reductions are not, uh, yeah, we aren't seeing reductions. All right, and let's let's assume that we don't see the necessary reductions by 2030 uh, that the scientists are calling for. What does our planet, what does our atmosphere then look like? Okay, so the idea is by the time, so right now our atmosphere is going up at three parts per million CO2. Uh, per year, and as soon as we get to 450 parts per million CO2, then we're going to be at two degrees Celsius of warming. So it's a direct one-to-one -one relationship. You put more CO2 in the air as heat, the sunlight hits the Earth and re-radiates and tries to leave the Earth. It gets trapped in by these uh, greenhouse gases that have these uh, uh, absorbing bonds, like uh, if you're mountain biking. So they re-radiate that heat and, and re-radiate back to Earth. And so the more CO2 we have, the more the warmer the Earth is. It's straight one to one. So when we get to 450 parts per million, we're going to be at two degrees Celsius. And at that point, we're expecting to cross uh, various different tipping points beyond which we are not going. It won't matter any longer how much we are emitting because the Earth can go into these positive feedback loops. Um, or accentuating feedback loops where some warming causes even more warming. And that is continuing separate from how much we actually admit. So we don't want to get into that range. And of course, two degrees Celsius, that's a pretty dramatic rise. I think it's eight to 10 feet in terms of the ocean levels rising in so many cities, particularly in the United States that have toxic waste dumps and all sorts of other problems right near the coast. They are essentially gonna be in some, some major trouble. You mentioned some of, the, um, some of the changes again that people can take personally in terms of less meat consumption. What are other things though that we can do either individually or collectively that you think are realistic within the next 10 years? Well, the big thing that's going on now is that states and nations are in a race for 
who can be 100% have provide 100% renewable electricity to their populations. So where where's one idea is to conserve conserve um, as your appliances go out of date, and you know that's what what's going on is we need to change all of our use to electricity, so that when 100% renewable electricity comes to our home, we are no longer using the fossil fuels. So you can put solar if you're a homeowner, you can put solar on your roof, you can uh, move to electric vehicles, and you can change your hot water and your heat systems to heat pumps. Uh, and those would be electric heat pumps. And so we'd be using renewable energy for those in the future. And Dr. Greg, for people who want to read the 1500 word report themselves, where can they find it? Just Google bioscience, world scientist warning to humanity. And mm -hmm. it'll pop up and you can read the whole thing. It's really uh, easy read. It's 1500 words and it's very direct, um, not just full of uh, scientific jargon though. In other words, it's it's written, I assume, then for for the for the average person out there. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to have an advanced degree in climate change to be able to understand it. Uh, are there also some of the recommendations in that particular report so that people who, you know, in addition to the various steps they want to take, in addition to trying to understand what the problem is, that there's some concrete steps that they can take based on going to that site and going to that report. The recommendations in the in the report are for at a national and international level. So it'd be more on things that you would want to vote for it, uh, rather than things you can personally do. So it's their larger level uh, impacts. And so what we need is right now, 22% uh, of all of the fossil fuels that are emitted do have a carbon price associated with them. So we're advocating that we have to have a price on carbon. These things are being put in the atmosphere. We need to pay not only to burn them, but also the impacts on the extreme climate events that they're causing. We need those things covered in cost also. Finally, um, so Dr. Greg, um, you're, you're right in the middle of all this. Um, is it very depressing to be a scientist, to be looking at the data and be able to be so familiar with it and realize, I mean, you're screaming at the top of your lungs, the scientific community, and it seems like so much of the world just either isn't hearing it or deliberately tuning it out. It, that's gonna vary between scientists. For me, I started in 1990 when no one was listening. You are interviewing us, <laughs> this is on TV. This is the, the broadcast newscasters when they talk about extreme events. Now the, the attribution science, uh, the, the science of climate attribution is now real time. And so as the, as the extreme events come out, the science is coming out. So there's not the year lag time. So the actual newscasters are explaining about anthropogenic climate change at the same time as the extreme events are happening. So I see a lot of progress. I know also the cuts that are met that we need to make. If we just cut by six to seven percent per year, you do the math. That comes to um, uh, a, a ten. That comes to having our emissions every decade. And so if we have our emissions every decade for three decades, we really will be at net zero. Yeah, and so I I am more of the optimist. It is sad that we are at business as usual, but if you play out the numbers numbers and you play out the news, I I think it still can happen. And I think you do have to be an optimist, otherwise this can just drive you crazy. In any case, Dr. Jillian Gregg, professor at Oregon State University, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you.
The Taliban is on Twitter. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. Now that the Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan and all the major cities, including the capital of Kabul, Twitter has made the decision to go ahead and allow two of its representatives from the Taliban to go ahead and post their tweets on the social media giant. Is that a good idea or not? We're here to talk about this as Hasti Afkami. She is the head of digital for the S3 group, which is a lobbying and policy organization. Hasti, what do you make of the Twitter decision to allow the Taliban to do this? You know, it's pretty shocking. Um, the tal- Twitter has pretty strict rules on what they allow on the platform and what they don't. They don't like people who incite violence, they don't like uh, people who have derogatory commentary, and that's pretty much all the Taliban do, right? They incite violence. And while the Taliban has tried to be, you know, tried to to change their approach, they still aren't denouncing violence. They're not denouncing people who are supporting the violence that they're perpetuating in Afghanistan. So it's pretty interesting why Twitter is using that standard for a lot of other people, but isn't using it for leaders of the Taliban who are clearly using the platform to incite violence and extend their reign of terror. Well, the Twitter folks say that while the Taliban, of course, is a terrorist organization and the Taliban is doing all sorts of egregious stuff in the streets of Afghanistan as they have in the past, the tweets from the two members of the Taliban seem to be pretty innocuous, just drawing attention to a news conference, congratulating you know, political leaders. It doesn't seem like there's anything in the tweets themselves. So shouldn't that be the standard? And that is, well, is the tweet itself offensive? Absolutely, you know that's a part of it. But when you look at other people that have been banned on Twitter or even on other social networks, but it's specifically on Twitter, they not are not are always banned just for their own tweets. It's if someone that they are supportive of or someone that's related to their organization incites violence and they don't stop it or they don't squash it or they don't say, wait, we don't support that. Uh, right now, there's so much violence going on all over Afghanistan that is at the hands of the Taliban. Videos that have been, uh, you know, substantiated by third parties, and no one from the Taliban, their quote-unquote spokesperson, hasn't come forward to say we don't support this violence or we contemn this violence or anything like that. Instead, they are just trying to. You know, further their cause and get more people to follow them. The fact that Twitter isn't being setting them to the same standard, saying, "Hey, listen, you need to say that you don't appreciate this violence or that you don't need to support it." it, it it's interesting to see because they've done that to so many other famous people. Right, and most famously, they did it to President Donald Trump when Donald Trump would say all sorts of outrageous things on Twitter. But the moment that he said, "Well, the election was." invalid or that there was, he would make false claims about the election or he seemed to encourage the January 6th Capitol insurrection. That's when Twitter decided, okay, you're gonna be banned and Donald Trump remains banned. But again, the, the, the argument is that well, Donald Trump was specifically doing things to either incite violence, to encourage things or to say things that are flat out wrong. Whereas the Taliban in terms of how they operate, sure, they may be lying and subjugating women and killing innocent people and engaging in violence. But the message over the social media platform, like their message from the news conference, was, "Hey, we're just communicating what our point of view is." Yeah, you know, and that makes sense. Like the Taliban clearly have really upped their social media game. It's 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 interesting to see this this regime that 
you know, perpetuates, um, you know, old old traditions using social media so effectively. But the fact that they are trying to perpetuate things that are against Twitter's policies, things against human rights, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, and using Twitter to advance their cause, and yet Twitter isn't stopping them is interesting. Yes, they are not saying go out and kill people using the platform, but they're, those accounts that are supporting of the Taliban, they follow other accounts that do these things. They follow other accounts that who say they're Taliban supportive, and those accounts are the ones that are sharing these horrible videos, that are sharing these statements that are inciting violence. And the fact that the Taliban won these these specific accounts of Taliban leaders, one, are following those accounts, and two, aren't saying that these accounts are wrong or that aren't saying that this is something that they don't support. It should be a red flag enough for Twitter based on Twitter's previous standards and previous conduct in this space. If Twitter had different standards and had, uh, had acted differently, let's let's just suppose that Twitter said, you know what, we're not going to be in the business of arbitrating what's truth and what's what's not, and 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 condoning language or not, and they just said we're going to let everybody use Twitter however they want, uh, no matter what they're doing. If that was what Twitter had done, and they'd allowed Donald Trump and they'd allowed some of the other Republicans and Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the other people who would be described as nutballs in the United States Congress who have been banned from Twitter or suspended, if Twitter just said we're going to let everybody use it, would that make a difference in terms of allowing the Taliban to do it? In your estimation, I, I think so, right? Because it would be using, you know, there, there's two different arguments. It's one, how is Twitter conducting its business? In this case, Twitter, Twitter is conducting its business in a way where they're not using the same standard for everyone. So in, if we look at it from the sense of how is Twitter, Twitter conducting its business, then that makes sense. If everyone can say whatever they want, it's, it's their platform. But on the other side, when you look at it as advertisers use Twitter, organizations use Twitter, if that's how they want to use their platform, then organizations should take a hard look and say, you know what, do we want to be associated with a platform that supports these sorts of organizations or these sorts of regimes or these sorts of terrorist groups? Well, you've had a really interesting point, and that is a lot of advertisers now have to make that decision, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or other social media, that when they essentially provide a platform for organizations that are involved in killing people and the lack of civil rights and humanity, that advertisers have to decide, do we want to be part of this? Do you think that advertisers should now pull back from some of these social media giants because they are giving a platform to the Taliban? I think it depends on the advertiser. I think it depends on the organization. If you're an organization that really is fighting for human rights or women's rights or democracy, children, anything along these lines, then it is kind of weird to, to run ads on a platform where your ads could show up next to a tweet of, from a Taliban leader, right? That doesn't, it, it feels disconjointed. If you're a consumer company, it really depends on what your values are. It depends on what, what you feel. But I think that that's something for, for me and my clients that we would really take into account is where will our ads run and where are we spending our advertising dollars and, and do we want to spend them somewhere that doesn't have the same values as our organization? How important is the credibility of the platform, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anyone else? How important is that these days to advertisers? And and what would advertisers say if all these social media companies just said, you know what, we're just gonna we're just gonna publish everything, and if you want to advertise, great. If you don't want to advertise, that's fine too. I think the the credibility of these platforms is is incredibly um, at risk right now and at stake. 
you know, I think when advertisers look, where do they want to place their ads? Where do they want to spend their advertising money? Is it on a platform that supports their values? Is it on a platform that has the same standards for everyone? The fact that Twitter doesn't isn't holding the same standards when it comes to these sorts of accounts, would they hold the same standards when it comes to what types of ads they're going to approve? Um, you know, how how do you know what their business practice is? And so I think to that point, advertisers really are starting to look, especially after um, you know Donald Trump's when he, when President Trump was elected, and we saw how much social media was influenced, uh, had influence there. I think it's really important for advertisers to look there. And I think more and more of them are, more and more of them are asking harder questions, or asking where are my ads gonna show up? Who are they gonna be a part of? And it's something that you're seeing more and more. Do you see any upside to having the Taliban on Twitter? And I guess the, the thought that I have with this is there's some people say, look, you can either you know try to fight the Taliban everywhere, including on social media and ban them, or you can invite them to be part of the process and try to guide them and try to get them to be more moderate um, through their access to something like Twitter. Do you buy that? No, not at all. I don't think that there's anything that can make the Taliban moderate. These are people who don't believe in basic human rights. They don't believe in women's rights. Uh, they They kill at whim. There's nothing that can make them moderate and bringing them into the fold, bringing them as part of the conversation, giving them a seat at the table, talking to them like they should they should have a seat at the table just gives just empowers them, just gives them more fire to to go forward. So I don't think that there's anything that can be done to make these these men moderate. But they have that seat at the table. They have that power anyway right now because they're in control of Afghanistan. They are the de facto leadership government. Is it important that we have some sort of connection, some ability to communicate with them just because of that role that they have in their society? You know, I think that one of the best parts of social media, one of something that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, all of these groups bring about is civil society. And I think the the best way that we can support um, Afghanistan and support bringing, you know, a stable government to Afghanistan is by using the social media platforms, supporting the civil society within Afghanistan. So supporting the women's rights activists, supporting the people who are fighting for democracy. That's the best way to use social media. Astiaf Kami, she is in charge of digital for the S3 group. It is a fascinating conversation and a lot of debate, of course, over social media. Hasti, thanks for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you. And that will do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the entire team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.